Hi, this is Father Dominic Legg, director of the Thomistic Institute. Thanks for tuning in to today's lecture. Every talk on this podcast was originally delivered at an in-person event for college students, perhaps at one of our campus chapters or at a Thomistic Institute retreat or conference. Students today are hungry for the truth, and you know how important it is for them to find it. If this podcast has impacted you, that's because someone gave a donation to make these talks possible. So I'm wondering, would you do the same for someone else this December? Even a gift of $10 or $20 has a big impact. Your gift will bring the truth to college students and to many others in 2023 if you give before December 31st. And you can make a tax-deductible donation at www.tomisticinstitute.org donate. That's www.tomisticinstitute.org donate. Thank you for your generosity. And may God bless you this Advent and Christmas season. My name is Joe Marine. I'm a cardiologist. I spent about half of my time in clinical practice, seeing patients with arrhythmias, doing procedures like ablations and uh, device implantations and so forth. And about the other half of my time, uh, mostly with administration and society work and been interested in this issue since about 2015 when a bill to legalize assisted suicide was first introduced um, in Maryland, got first interested through my church, and then just kind of as a health policy issue. Um, and I think that, as we'll talk about, it's really one of the most important medical ethical issues um, that we're facing in our time. So I think it's worth knowing something about it. I don't have any uh, relevant disclosures. So we'll start with some definitions. Doctor-assisted suicide or physician-assisted suicide is a form of euthanasia where a physician provides the means and the counseling for a patient to end his or her own life by self-administration. And there's a number of synonyms that you'll see for this in um, the literature and the late press. Um, PAS, abbreviation for physician-assisted suicide. Physician or doctor-assisted death, death with dignity, end-of-life option. And an increasingly popular one is aid in dying or medical aid in dying. That's the preferred term in Canada. Um, uh, the distinction between assisted suicide and euthanasia is that in, in euthanasia, formally the drugs are not self-administered. But I think as we'll talk about, the line between the two is increasingly blurred. And I really think of it as a form of euthanasia that's self-administered. Um, the initial the initial way that this was carried out was through uh, cecobarbital, a powerful uh, controlled substance, barbiturate, sedative, hypnotic. Um, normal doses, 100 to 200 milligrams to sleep or for control of seizures, uh, but given in a hundredfold overdose, dissolved in liquid and swallowed quickly is how this would be uh, done. Um, it's usually taken with an anti-emetic to prevent vomiting. Usually large amounts of medications can produce nausea and vomiting that would uh, counteract its effect, obviously. But as we'll talk about over the past three to four years, um, because these barbiturates have had a very large price spike and they're increasingly unavailable, um, there are basically experimentation with different combinations of sedatives and cardiac drugs that are currently being used in the states where this is legalized. Just in terms of a little historical background, um, in the mid-1800s, um, when anesthesia was invented, there was increasing medical use of morphine and chloroform anesthesia. 
and that led to proposals to use these drugs to hasten death for patients with advanced illnesses. Uh, in 1906, a euthanasia law was proposed in the Ohio State Legislature. It's the first record we have of this coming up for a vote before legislature, and it was voted down by about a three-to-one margin. In the 1920s and 30s, uh, there was increasing public support for the idea of euthanasia as well as eugenics, um, although it was never legally adopted. Um, World War II came around, and of course, because of the atrocities in Europe, um, this whole subject kind of fell into science, silence and abeyance uh, for about 30 years. Uh, historically, in 1980, Derek Humphrey, a British journalist, founded the Hemlock Society to promote euthanasia and assisted suicide with memories of uh, World War II and uh, what went on in Europe, kind of fading into the, uh, into the past. Uh, his most famous book, as you're probably aware, is Final Exit, um, The Practicalities of Self-Deliverance and Assisted Suicide for the Dying. Um, in 2003-2004, the Hemlock Society uh, basically folded and became a, uh, was absorbed by a larger organization called Compassion and Choices, which is now the leading organization that advocates for legalization of assisted suicide in the United States. Uh, as I said, they, they describe themselves as the oldest, largest, and most active nonprofit organization committed to improving care and expanding options for end-of-life. Uh, they're a national advocacy organization with a very large budget. They do a lot of fundraising. Almost all of their efforts are directed towards passage of assisted suicide laws in state legislatures. So they developed a model law, uh, which was passed in Oregon, as we'll talk about about 30 years ago. And that model law, they take uh, to states to state that they think is susceptible or interested in it and uh, advocate for its passage. And then they also do some promotion of use of assisted suicide in states where it's already legalized. Some of the smaller organizations involved with this, um, sorry, include uh, Death with Dignity, Final Exit Network. These are, I think, uh, um, European organizations and Dictatus in Switzerland. Um, Dr. Jack Kevorkian um, is a big part of this picture as well. He was a pathologist in Michigan. He never really practiced med uh, medicine. I think he was a pathologist for maybe a year, um, but he spent most of his uh, professional life working in this area of assisted death or assisted suicide uh, between, particularly in the 1990s. Um, he assisted in the deaths of about 130 patients with advanced illnesses. He invented these machines for self-administration, uh, one that he called the Thanatron, which is an injection machine, which is shown, uh, shown here, where we basically hook up an IV and the patient um, could uh, 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 basically press a button to administer the drugs. And then he had another device he called the Mercitron, which would allow a patient to activate carbon monoxide inhalation. He was uh, tried several times, uh, but there was really no basis to convict him until uh, he basically recorded himself giving the injection, and that was enough for him to get a conviction for second-degree murder. And it's interestingly, in, in some of the states that have laws that explicitly prohibit assisted suicide, passed these laws right around this time because there was so much public notoriety about Dr. Gavorkian and the work that he was doing, including Maryland. Maryland's law that explicitly makes assisted suicide illegal was passed in 1999. This is the current status of legalization of assisted suicide in the United States, and there's a, a map. The states in red, it is legalized. Um, the states in 11 actually kind of went the other way and have passed laws strengthening opposition to assisted suicide. Uh, the blue, I think, is... Um, 
they have they have pre-existing bans on assisted suicide that are still in effect. So Oregon uh, basically was the frontier. Um, this this occurred uh, shortly after a uh, case was taken to the Supreme Court just to try to argue that it's right there was a right um, to euthanasia and assisted suicide, and they said no, there's not, but states can protect it if they wish. And so Oregon essentially took them up on that, and uh, the Compassion and Choices Organization got a legalization through referendum that was then implemented by legislation in 1997. So there's still kind of the model state that other states look to for how assisted suicide is practiced. Washington, 10 years later, legalized it by referendum in 2008. So the West Coast leaded the way. Uh, Montana decriminalized it by a judicial action in 2009, although there's been really very little activity there. Um, the next uh, event occurred in Vermont, which legislated in 2013. A very big event that you may remember was California legalizing it in 2015, uh, partially in response to uh, activism by uh, Brittany Menard, a um, young woman who had a brain tumor who campaigned for this. Um, many thought that that was going to lead to essentially a flood of legalization throughout the United States. That never really happened, but there were a few more legalizations in Colorado, the District of Columbia, Hawaii, uh, Maine, New Jersey, and most recently New Mexico. So something like around 20% of the U.S. population lives in a state where assisted suicide is now legalized. Uh, outside of the United States, um, Netherlands is perhaps most well-known um, in this area. They legalized, uh, decriminalized it in 1984 and formally legalized it in 2002 and is now allowed for almost any reason, any advanced illness that produces uh, intractable suffering is the usual language um, that can be considered. And in the Netherlands now accounts for about 4% of all deaths, which is the highest of anywhere in the world, although Canada is getting close. In Belgium, um, PAS and assisted suicide was legalized also in 2002, also allowed for most medical reasons, including in some cases for children. Switzerland is interesting. They, they are, it's allowed by nonprofit groups since the 1980s, and they're one of the few countries that allow uh, non-citizens to come into the country um, for assisted suicide or euthanasia, and most recipients are actually not Swiss. Um, and there are some cases that you'll see periodically in the newspaper of the folks from Europe who go to Switzerland for this. Uh, Canada, a very interesting case. Um, they actually, uh, their parliament in the early 2010s uh, passed a law overwhelmingly strengthening their assisted suicide prohibition, uh, but a patient uh, went to the Supreme Court and got a 9-0 decision that the Bill of Rights in Canada um, uh, uh, requires allowing assisted suicide in euthanasia. Uh, they actually commissioned some uh, ethical organizations to look into the idea, and uh, they concluded that they could make no meaningful death distinction between a right to assisted suicide and a right to euthanasia. And so Parliament was obliged to legalize both. So they had enabling legislation in 2016, and now has been taken up uh, quite rapidly and is inevitably expanding, as we'll talk about, to uh, other indications. So in Australia, um, they legalized assisted suicide in one state, Victoria, in 2019, and I think there's another one or two uh, that have legalized it since that time. So the End of Life Option Act is what you'll hear about in Maryland. That's the title of the bill that's been brought multiple times before the uh, Maryland legislature. It creates a legal process which allows any licensed physician um, there's a couple of states where, uh, sorry, 
Uh, in New Mexico, a, a physician associate or nurse practitioner uh, can also participate, but in all the other states, it's only a licensed physician to prescribe a lethal overdose of drug or drugs, and none of the bills or laws anywhere state what drug or drugs can be used. To a state resident, and there's, I think, two exceptions, New York and Minnesota, you do not have to be a state resident, um, who voluntarily submits oral and written requests. A patient has to be deemed terminally ill, and we'll talk about what that means and how that's kind of a vague term, and they have to be mentally competent, another somewhat vague term, with less than six months to live as determined by the physician with or without treatment. So you live for you know 20 years with treatment, if you have a terminal illness, you choose to not to have treatment, physician decides you have less than six months to live, then that's okay. No other qualification is needed. There's nothing in the bill that says you have to be suffering. There's no threshold of, um, of any other requirement. There has to be repeated requests separated by 15 days, although Oregon just passed an exception to that if someone is deemed to be imminently uh, terminally ill in less than that time. The request and eligibility has to be confirmed by a second physician uh, who does not have to be independent. Physician can practice in the same group. Uh, and the drugs have to be self-administered by the patient. We'll talk about how that can get a little bit fuzzy as well. So here's what the bill looks like. Um, this was proposed in Maryland in 2015, 2016, and 2017 in successive years. Never really got anywhere, never got out of committee. It was drawn each year uh, due to lack of support, but it reached a threshold in 2019 where it actually passed the House by a few votes, uh, and an amended bill failed in the Senate by a single vote. So it came very close to getting over uh, the goal line. In 2020, the unamended original bill was reintroduced in uh, 2020 in that legislative session. Our legislative session in Maryland generally runs from mid-January to mid-April, so that's when all the activity takes place. Um, however, they recognized that they still did not have the votes in the Senate. There was still a couple votes short and so they withdrew the bill and did not put it up for a vote. The pandemic happened since then, so they've not reintroduced it, but I can expect as we come out of the pandemic, um, they consider Maryland very close to the threshold, and so they're likely to bring it back year after year. Um, so I'm gonna talk about some concerns that uh, I and others have about uh, this entire conception and the End of Life Act, Option Act in particular, um, including ethical issues, concerns that this isn't really medical care, concerns about dangers in the specific legislation and the lack of real safeguards, um, problems about this concept of terminally ill, um, the discriminatory aspect of it, how it's not necessary in the age of better medical care, palliative care, and hospice care, uh, concerns that it will lead to other forms of euthanasia and will be expanded, um, will not be practiced by the vast majority of doctors, and even for those who think that, well, you know, it's not really affect me, it really will affect everybody if this gets into the culture of medical care in the United States. So first, the ethical issues. Um, this has always been prohibited by mainstream medical organizations dating back 2,400 years to the oath of Hippocrates, the traditional oath that physicians uh, take after finishing their training, and very specifically states in the original oath, which isn't that long, it's only a few paragraphs long, but it specifically states that neither will I administer a deadly drug or poison to anybody when asked to do so, nor will I suggest such a course. So it shows that this idea of euthanasia-assisted suicide has been around as long as there have been physicians. We've, we've been asked uh, to participate in this. 
The American Medical Association, again, I think in response to the activities of Dr. Kevorkian, took up this issue in their House of Delegates and determined that assisted suicide is fundamentally incompatible with a physician's role as a healer, would be difficult or impossible to control, and would pose serious societal risks. The American College of Physicians, the second largest medical organization in the US, the National Hospice and Palliative Care Organization, the World Medical Association, and many other medical organizations also oppose assisted suicide as a core principle of medical ethics, a red line which protects the integrity of the medical profession, protects public trust in the medical profession, and protects the public. This is the AMA opinion again. It's very short. Um, and this was uh, re-debated because some states had passed this. And so those states, delegates from those states, brought it back to the American Medical Association. The Council on Ethical and Judicial Affairs studied the issue exhaustively over a two-year period, brought it back to a vote to the House of Delegates, and it was overwhelmingly reaffirmed after this three-year review in 2019. The American College of Physicians uh, took up this position, I think, around 15 or 20 years ago. They also looked at it again in 2017 and reaffirmed their position that they do not support legalization of physician-assisted suicide given its problematic nature, affecting the trust in the relationship and in the profession and altering the professional's role in society. This is the World Medical Association, which has consistently at every annual meeting, they reaffirm their opposition that the WMA, WMA is firmly opposed to euthanasia and physician-assisted suicide. And in the developing world, the opposition is the strongest. Um, the more developed countries in Europe tend to be uh, more open to changing this position, but they get very, very staunch opposition uh, from the developing world. Um, the World Medical Association basically is like the organization to which the AMA and all the other national medical associations go to as a Congress. So the second point, that it isn't really medical care if you think about it. Um, there's no basis in medical science or medical tradition for this. If you're all used to going to PubMed, Medline, and looking up, you know, why do we treat coronary disease in a particular way? Why do we uh, treat atrial fibrillation in a particular way? We can see thousands of articles, basic science, translational science, bringing therapies to the bedside, clinical trials. You won't find anything uh, like that with euthanasia and assisted suicide. There are no guidelines, there's no standard of care, there's no training in medical school or residency, and I hope we never will uh, have medical training uh, to do this. We should really be concerned that these kinds of practices could be taught uh, to medical students as medical care. Um, we would never think of giving a patient a cyanide tablet or carbon monoxide to be medical care, so why should we think of giving dangerous controlled substances to patients uh, to end their life as, uh, as medical care? The danger of these laws are that the safeguards are really illusory if you look at them very carefully. Um, in the assisted suicide laws as passed and proposed in the United States, there's no requirement for formal psychiatric evaluation. Um, there's a minimal informed consent. Uh, I, as a physician, am used to getting page, you know, pages five to ten page consent forms listing every conceivable uh, thing that can go wrong and making sure a patient fully understands what they're signing up for. If you look at the, assist, the, the informed consent required in the laws, it's about two or three paragraphs long. It says nothing about the dangers at all. There are no witnesses required to the taking of the drugs. There's a witness required to signing the form after which the patient, the physician can give the prescription, 
But once that prescription leaves the physician's hands, medical oversight and any witnesses are gone. Nothing is required. The patient could take it in any setting a month later, six months later, a year later. No witnesses required, no affidavit that it was uh, taken according to the law is required. There's no routine audits, um, amazingly, um, in the states that have legalized this. There's no impartial third-party oversight. In most of the states, physicians are granted immunity. Patients basically waive their rights to ever uh, sue a physician for making a wrong diagnosis, um, prescribing the drugs in the wrong way. Um, and the records are excluded from legal discovery and routinely destroyed every year in Oregon, um, which has the most experience with this. So a family member you know, who hears about this, my, you know, my mother and my father took their own life through this process. I don't understand why. They try to go get a lawyer, look into this. They can't find anything because they're excluded from discovery. Very, very different from any other form of medical care, by the way, where physicians are extremely accountable for everything they do and everything that they fail to do. Um, this is a from a report that Oregon issues every year as required by law. They require to give a summary of all prescriptions written under the law. Um, and just some interesting facts that you can find if you dig through it is that in their so-called death with dignity program, uh, patients have required up to 104 hours to die after taking the drugs, four days. Um, at least six patients awoke after ingesting the drugs. And for 80% of patients, it's unknown if complications occur. Initially, they assumed if nobody reported complications, there were none. Now they've taken the opposite approach because there are no witnesses because only 10 to 20% of these deaths are witnessed by a medical provider. Um, they, don't, they don't know if any complications occurred. Let's make sure I pass. Yeah. It's worth asking the question, is, is death with dignity really dignified? And the answer is not always. Um, this is, uh, as I mentioned, some um, the, the obituates that were traditionally used for this have become harder and harder to obtain. And so doctors have been essentially experimenting with other treatments, throwing in different cocktails of sedatives and cardiac drugs. And one such experiment um, led in Washington uh, led to a use of chloral hydrate, which is an extremely caustic drug when it's uh, removed from its capsule. And this is a direct quote from an article that appeared at USA Today that the alternative turned out to be too harsh, burning patients' mouths and throats, causing some to scream in pain uh, after it was ingested. And there were some deaths that took uh, a day or two to occur. Uh, and this kind of brings up the subject of experimentation uh, with alternative drugs. And it's really kind of shocking uh, how these laws give physicians the ability to ex essentially experiment uh, with lethal drugs with no oversight. Um, so as I mentioned, uh, the first drugs that were used were barbiturates, pentobarbital and cecobarbital. Chloral hydrate, as we mentioned, is too caustic. So the, now the popular combinations are called DDMP and DDMA. DDMP is diazepam, which is Valium, sedative hypnotic, Digoxin, which is a cardiac drug that's been around for 250 years, that's well known to cause lethal ventricular arrhythmias when taken in overdose. Morphine, which obviously is a painkiller that's also a sedative hypnotic, and propranolol, which is a beta blocker that slows the heart rate. The DDMA uses amitriptyline, a well-known um, antidepressant, um, which has proarrhythmic properties, is used instead of propranolol. Um, so in these essentially experiments, there's no IRB oversight, there's no DSMB, all the usual safety features that we associate with 
need trials of the even very, very little risk that we're required to, to participate in. There's no controlled clinical trials of this, and it goes without saying that there's no FDA approval for any drug that's used in euthanasia or assisted suicide. This is a graph from the Oregon report showing the change in use of drugs over time. Um, and again, barbiturates initially used and now predominantly DDMA, the amitriptyline combination. And it's probably the amitriptyline and the digoxin in combination that's causing lethal ventricular arrhythmias uh, as the mode of use. Fourth, um, concerns about prognosis and how do we assess prognosis in patients who are so-called terminally ill. We know and have data that physicians cannot accurately predict a six-month prognosis in individual patients. We can look at a population of 1,000, 2,000 patients with a given condition, come up with a bell curve, uh, but we know that it's very difficult to know where the tails of that curve are. And just statistically, we know because uh, you can count these numbers, that 20% of patients who are referred to a U.S. hospice outlive their six-month prognosis, which is the traditional requirement for being referred for hospice. And we know that 10% live greater than a year. They call that graduating from hospice when, when that happens. There's no requirement that patients need to exhaust or even try any standard medical care. So somebody with end-stage renal disease who could live 30 years on dialysis, you stop your dialysis, you're terminally ill. An insulin-dependent diabetic who would die of ketoacidosis within six months, you stop your insulin, you're terminally ill. So many patients with chronic illness who are not dying would potentially be eligible. Data from Oregon also show that some patients live for over three years after getting a prescription. And there's no consequences at all for the physician who made the incorrect prognosis. Uh, next uh, idea is that this is really discriminatory. These bills create a new class of human beings who are denied the protection of the law afforded to all others. Um, suicide was once illegal in Anglo-American law going back to Roman times. Um, there, were, there were consequences if you tried to commit suicide or failed. There would be consequences for your family in terms of losing a state and inheritance. All of those laws have been done away, so there's really nowhere where suicide is illegal but it is discouraged in almost all societies and faith traditions because of the valuation of human life. It's assisting a suicide, helping somebody or encouraging another that's illegal because the law recognizes the value of human life and the potential for abuse in that situation due to undue influence and coercion. So if you really think about it, our standard approach to somebody who wants to take their own life as a doctor is suicide prevention. That's the standard of care. In fact, in, in California, I remember I had, I had an affirmative obligation to prevent suicide, in some cases calling the police to put a patient in custody um, if I thought a patient was imminently suicidal. So what these laws effectively do is they deny suicide prevention as the standard of care for this class of people defined by having a six-month prognosis. And this has a lot of implications for people with severe illnesses and people with disabilities and advanced age. And this has been recognized then the message that we're basically sending is that your life is less valuable, it's less worthy of the protection of the law. And this message has been heard loud and clear by disability rights organizations. They can see the danger of this, and this is why um, these laws are opposed by almost all disability rights organizations in the United States. And when these bills come before state legislators, they're among the strongest advocates of opposition um, to their passage. 
We also have to be a little concerned um, about conflict of interest and financial conflicts of interest. This was a cost analysis of medical assistance in dying, medical aid in dying, the term in Canada, um, just before, I think just after their law passed legalizing euthanasia. And they essentially estimated that um, uh, implementing these laws would allow uh, Canada to reduce healthcare spending where there's most, uh, most uh, um, medical care is publicly funded. It would save between 34 million and 138 million exceeding the relatively modest initial outlay that would be required. And so this concept, I think, is not lost on legislators. It never comes up as an argument. Um, but the thought experiment I do is that if you know, hospice care and palliative care were inexpensive and assistance in dying were extremely expensive, I think there would be very little support for it in the legislatures. It's also worth commenting that the laws do not make it illegal for a family or physicians to suggest or even to recommend assisted suicide so we have to think about the idea that under economic pressures, under economic and cultural pressure, this so-called choice could become an expectation. And this has actually been explicitly stated by none other than Derek Humphrey, the founder of the modern euthanasia movement, who wrote in one of his books in 2000 that economics, not the quest for broadening individual liberties or increased autonomy, will drive assisted suicide to the plateau of acceptable practice. We also have to think about the conflicts of interest for insurance companies. You know, why pay for expensive chemotherapy when you can pay for a few assisted suicide drugs, much less expensive, and for hospitals and physicians who are under increasingly pressure to reduce healthcare costs. Nowhere more so in Maryland where we have this total cost of care model. Next point, is this really necessary? Um, patients can already decline any and all medical care that they don't want, and they can codify this uh, desire in advance directives. We know that palliative care, hospice care, and pain management programs have made large strides um, as, as medical organizations, and uh, there are a number of excellent uh, quality organizations that provide this service in Maryland already. Next point that it will inevitably lead to other forms of euthanasia and expansion. Uh, and the fallacy is that if you accept that this is a right, if you accept that this is compassionate medical care, it will inevitably lead to expanding this so-called right to others. So no matter how carefully you try to draw a circle around those who would be eligible, and everywhere where this has been legalized, they push on those borders almost immediately to expand it um, to others. Because if it's a right, why shouldn't everybody have that right? Um, it will relentlessly lead to expansion to those without terminal illness or even physical illness, and we've seen that in other countries. Um, if patients are unable to swallow pills, suppose you're too sick to swallow, you know, 100 pills, even if ground up and liquefied, well, where's your right then? How do you exercise that right? Well, you have to give euthanasia by injection. It's the only way for them to get their right. What about patients who can't give consent? We allow patients to give consent by proxy for medical care. So why can't you give consent for proxy for assisted suicide euthanasia? And then finally, we sometimes make decisions on patients' behalf. If they can't exercise their right or there's no proxy immediately available. So why don't we make this decision on behalf of others who would want to live that way? That leads to mercy killing. And there's evidence that it is happening in Belgium and the Netherlands already. This just shows a graph of uh, utilization of assisted suicide and uh, euthanasia in uh, Netherlands and Belgium. Interestingly, in states where both are legalized, uh, greater than 95% is euthanasia by injection. Almost nobody 
wants assisted suicide by pills if euthanasia by injection is, is available. Um, here is documentation that this occurs in patients with purely psychiatric illness without even any physical illness. Um, this was a paper that was published in JAMA Psychiatry um, uh, several years ago. I don't know if I have the date. I think it was uh, around 2015 or 2016 or so. Just documenting um, a number of patients who had received euthanasia for anxiety disorder, for PTSD, eating disorders, prolonged grief, autism, and depression. You know, even depression, refractory depression, um, can be an indication for euthanasia in these countries. And there was a notorious case of a 29-year-old who was physically entirely healthy um, who was euthanized for depression in 2018. Um, this is the concept of euthanasia by uh, advanced directive and the uh, uh, terrible things that that can lead to. So this is allowed um, in the Netherlands. Um, and a, a woman who has had Alzheimer's disease specified in an advanced directive that she wanted to be euthanized once she reached a certain state where she could no longer uh, take care of herself. Uh, so one day, for whatever reason, she'd reached a state where the doctor decided or the family decided that today was the day. Today was the day, and uh, she actually had to be held down by her family because she didn't really understand what was happening to her at that point to have an IV forcibly inserted into her, and she was euthanized. And this actually came before the uh, Dutch commission that oversees this to test whether is this really legal, and they concluded, yes, this is what the law allows. So they positively affirmed that this is covered under their law. Uh, Canada, I mentioned, legalized this by judicial uh, decision and is enabled by legislation in 2016. And uh, the uptake there has been very rapid. They've even published in the New England Journal uh, protocols for how they make decisions about who is eligible and how to carry it out. Uh, next point. The uh, vast majority of doctors won't practice this, no matter what polls say. In Oregon, almost all prescriptions are written by only about 2 or 3% of the state's physicians. Um, the report that I mentioned specifies how long the physician-patient relationship was that led to the prescription, and the average is about three months. And if you think about it, that means that it's not the patient's family physician or internist or even oncologist or neurologist that are writing these prescriptions. Patients are going to a small cadre of doctors who believe in this and provide it as a service. Um, so several have been profiled in the media. You may have read some of these profiles in the New York Times who, who do nothing other than provide this as a service. This was an uh, article that was published in the Washington Post a year after the District of Columbia uh, passed their law. Their law required that any physician uh, participating, uh, basically read a 10-slide PowerPoint and answer a couple of questions to be registered. And out of 11,000 licensed physicians in D.C., a grand total of two in the first year of implementation uh, registered uh, to participate. This number is probably a little higher now, but it still shows you that there is not a huge clamoring uh, to participate in this among the medical community. And then finally, uh, this is something that will affect everybody. We like to say that medicine is a public trust. That's a popular saying um, at Hopkins. We know that the public collectively holds healthcare professionals accountable for each other, for the integrity of healthcare systems, for the actions of other healthcare professionals. We know that we increasingly work in teams of increasing size. And if you think about it, we really have to have some common ethical framework to be able to work together and to be able to trust one another 
Uh, otherwise, teens are going to break down. Um, my view, assisted suicide and euthanasia will really corrode how all healthcare providers view patients with advanced illnesses and disabilities. If we equate terminal illness with dying, we know it's not the same thing. And if we can equate compassion with taking somebody's life. And I think as a result, we're going to get health professions, medical professionals, and a healthcare system that's less caring and less compassionate. So I've gone over these reasons for opposition, and I've admittedly given a one-sided view of this. If you want an alternative view, Compassion and Choices has a lot of information on their website, uh, but I have a lot of concerns, and here is some information uh, for those organizations that are opposed. Um, some, some websites, I'm happy to give you a PDF of my slides for everybody, anybody who'd be interested. So that is all I have to present, and we have about uh, 15, 20 minutes to take any questions that you have and have a discussion. Thanks very much. Yes. I just want to clarify. So um, you said that part of the definition of physician-assisted suicide is that someone um, has to be able to sort of mentally consent to having a death event. So does this rule out, in, in the United States, the definition for physician-assisted suicide, does that rule out people who cannot mentally consent but may have a proxy to consent for them? Does that rule them out? That's correct. They must be able to understand. They have to sign a consent form. Nobody can consent for them. That's absolute. Now, the question is, what is mentally competent? And the laws state that somebody who is suspected to have a psychiatric or mental condition that may impair their judgment, they're required to be referred to a psychiatrist or psychiatric professional for evaluation. But in Oregon, um, that almost never happens. Um, I think uh, the peak was about 5% patient patients were referred to a psychiatrist, and down that about 1% or 2% um, per year actually get referred. So it's a judgment made exclusively by the physician taking the consent. You can see that there could potentially be some problems with that. But that's what the law says. Thanks. Oh, sorry. Yes. Okay. Um, I have. Quite a few questions, but I just wanted to ask what basis, so we talk about like, we talk about advocacy organizations, what basis exactly are they advocating on? There are so many red flags with how procedures actually being like, done. Um, well, there's many different organizations. The disability rights community uh, mainly advocate for the idea that this is going to put a target sign on my back. I'm very expensive to take care of. Um, this is going to lead to erosion in how they view the quality of life. There's a lot. I learned a lot from this community about, you know, the concept of quality of life and how often how people looking at others who are disabled have a very different view of what their quality of life is than the people who are actually living that life. Um, it's called the disability paradox. Um, so they're they're one of the strongest organizations. But we have, you know, health professionals who are concerned about the erosion of. Sense. Other lawyers say that it doesn't really make any sense to give everybody involved immunity. 
we don't really, you know, not, not the habit of giving people immunity for their actions um, in the law. That, that raises red flags, like why are we giving this cone of uh, absolute protection around it? Why not make them accountable like doctors are accountable for everything else? Right. So there's, there's many different angles uh, for the opposition. How do they justify, how do the advocacy organizations justify all that? Push my right autonomy. My right as an autonomous person to decide what happens to my body. And if you think about it, you know, this bill does not really give anybody any rights. And there's nothing in this bill that says I as a person can get this. It has to be gone through a physician. What the, the whole bill is structured around giving physicians immunity for what would otherwise be illegal. The patient does not have any affirmative right to anything uh, under any of these bills. If they did, they should just take the healthcare professions out of it entirely and say, you want pills? You go to this place and go to a vending machine and get your pills. Then that would be autonomy. This isn't really about autonomy. Thank you. Sure. In the back. Hi. Hi. Um, so, for uh, two questions. Um, I've had an autopsy done on uh, patients after they die and like see you know, effectiveness of different methods and whatnot. Mm -hmm. And then the second question um, I know you talk about like psychological trends and stuff. What about like any social economic trends in patients like that have you know gone through with it mm -hmm. or like families and stuff like that? Those are great questions. So the first question is uh, no, I've never seen an autopsy or any uh, examination. In fact, when you sign that form, you pretty much guarantee that your death will never be investigated, no matter how otherwise suspicious it might be, because it basically gives everybody immunity. So once you sign that form, you've signed away your rights, you've signed away for your family to investigate your death. So I'm not familiar with any autopsies ever being performed. And for that matter, as I said, we don't even really know what happens after the patients take the pills. If the pills cause the end of life, if there's some other assistance that may be given, uh, it's just a, a total unknown. In terms of your second question, so this has been looked at in Oregon, and it's actually primarily uh, college-educated uh, white Caucasian people who avail themselves of this in Oregon. Um, there's not as much data yet from other states because it's newer, but that's kind of the profile of the demographic that's most interested in this um, in Oregon where we have the most information. Yes? I just had a question about one of your slides um, in which you noted that the vast majority of doctors will not practice um, this practice of euthanasia even in the states where it's legalized. Um, and it's particularly noted that in Oregon, all of the suicide prescriptions are written by only about two to three percent of the state's physicians. And I just wanted to kind of, I guess, draw a parallel to that when, when it comes to, I guess, other controversial procedures, in particular, the sterilization of women under age of 30. Um, women online often trade uh, the names of doctors who will do things such as, you know, um, high tubes or you know, hysterectomies to women who are under the age of 30, but know that they want to be child-free. Um, but this is not um, done by most physicians because they believe that women should might change their mind or other reasons. And so that is my example of a controversial mm -hmm. medical procedure that is only done by a small percentage of physicians. And I guess I just wanted to question, um, I guess, the validity of you using that point to argue against euthanasia. Do you really think that just because, I mean, it's a new, relatively new procedure, yeah. um, relatively new concept, oh. do you really think that just because yeah. only a few doctors will do it, that it's actually um, well, ethical? 
only if only a small percentage of physicians have the technical surgical skills to tie fallopian tubes. That's that's already narrowing it down. But every any physician can write a prescription for digoxin. Um, so it's really something that anybody could do. Um, but I think I think it's a fair point. And if you do look at surveys, just in the abstract, uh, generally physicians will fall 50-50. That survey was done in Maryland, and it was used by the proponents of assisted suicide to say you know, a lot of doctors don't really have that much of a problem with it anymore. When you get to the organized medical society level where it's really discussed fully in all the implications, there tends to be more opposition, but if you just kind of send you know, a blank survey, you're for this, against this, um, get to about 50-50. But again, anybody can prescribe it, but only a small number do. So I'll leave it to you to think about what that means. Yeah. Uh, so regarding this question about uptake among physicians, we discussed um, legal uh, protection, but what about like um, the financial protection? So, is there? I know that you know if you can't be sued or pursued legally, maybe you're protected from an increase in your insurance premiums. But are there other things that insurers think about when um, working with these doctors in DC who are on the registry? Like, are there other um, reasons that a physician wouldn't sign up to? I don't know. You know, maybe this, whether it's moral, there's a difference between participating in something in the abstract and, you know, actually physically doing something. Uh, maybe yeah, one reason. Yeah, I don't. I don't think there's any other, you know, risk that they would that they would necessarily take participation. Yes. So thank you very much for the you know, very interesting talk. I'd just be interested in. Where do you draw the line between, I would say, like extensive palliative care mm -hmm. and physician-assisted suicide? So, for example, in, on the intensive care unit, at some point, we just stopped the machines and we didn't see yep. reason to treat anymore. Same with diabetes. Actually, I could just, if I have a patient sitting in front of me and asking if he wants to die, well, I could just advise him, don't take your drugs anymore. I'll give you another week of morphine and you're gone. So. Yeah. How do you see that, and how do you also the other organizations do that? That's a great question, and that kind of gets to philosophy and Thomistic thinking, which I don't claim to be an expert in. Um, but you know, there's a lot written about that, that distinction between an affirmative action taken to end life and withdrawing support that is simply prolonging the dying process. I think that's the main distinction that's made. Uh, but you're right, there's a lot of gray areas there that's, that's, that, that's undeniable. I think a lot of it boils down to intent, and a lot of it boils down to the condition of the patient. Are they dying or not dying? But you could, you could give a whole talk about that, that great line. Just out of interest to you know the proportion of sick people who kind of apply for physician assigned suicide who could also just die by just stop taking the medication. I haven't seen that pointed out. Most about 70% of people who take assisted suicide in Oregon have cancer. Uh, so that's the that's the major. The next highest number is neurologic diseases like ALS or Parkinson's, um, and then there's a few with cardiac disease. So it's mostly not it's mostly people who are living independently at home, actually, that avail themselves. It's not people in the hospital. Yes. Of that two or three percent in Oregon who provide this service, do you know how many of them or? Are palliative care physicians or oncologists, or vice versa? How many palliative care physicians? I've not seen a profile of that. Um, 
know, the two, two, I've seen several profiles in the New York Times of people who've agreed to be interviewed. Um, one was I saw in Canada was a retired OBGYN who kind of took it up as a post-retirement specialty. And then there's a very well-known physician in California uh, who's a retired emergency room physician who basically set up a practice in Berkeley um, to provide this after the law was passed. But they tend to be people who just very, very much believe in it for whatever reason. Yes? Yeah, the, the physician that I mentioned in Berkeley, um, you know, has aggregated some data. I've never seen it published. He's one of the proponents for modifying the drugs and sort of studying how long it takes for them to act, but I've never seen it published. Um, I can't imagine something like this coming before an IRB, um, knowing how IRBs work, what that would even look like, um, the questions they would have. So they, uh, the community has never been interested in, you know, participating in that kind of research and having that sort of scrutiny. Yes. Um, in my is there a is there an amendment that can be made to the current requirements? Well, that gets to legislative strategy. You know, the opposition doesn't want to concede that this should be passed in any way, shape, or form. So the, the opposition has generally stayed away from proposing amendments. As interestingly, in 2019, as I mentioned, they did pass some changes to the Senate version. Um, I think they took away the physician immunity, and I think there was one other level of protection that required some mental health evaluation. Um, so again, you can, you can see how it would be better than nothing, but generally as a legislative strategy, the opposition has taken the position that there's just no way this can be made safe. It's, a, it's you know, bungee jumping without a cord. Um, there's wearing a helmet's not gonna make a difference. Um, so that's, that's been kind of the, the, but theoretically, you know, that could make it safer. Um, but it's not something that the proponents would, I think, agree to, frankly, because it would so restrict the ability to use it if you had to have a witness signing an affidavit after the fact. Um, I, I don't think they would go for that. In fact, even the modest changes that the Senate passed in 2019, Compassion and Choices withdrew their support for the bill. Yes? Getting a little philosophical, but from the patient perspective, do you know, is there any work done on what would draw somebody to, say, a physician's suicide? Like, if their intent is to end their life, I, I, there, there are many ways one could end their life. What's yes. the draw to 
go to a doctor to do it as opposed yeah. to any other Well, I think having certainty, and then those who are proponents talk about having the finality of saying your goodbyes to your family, doing it in a controlled way. There's even been some profiles of uh, you know having a reporter present to see the whole ritual. Some people construct rituals around it and compassionate choices supports that and they say it's a, it's a peaceful, wonderful way to go. That's the pro side of it. Um, and you know, why use a violent uh, bloody method or you know, taking, you know, get some drugs on the street where you don't know what their effect is going to be. They want something reliable and predictable. And that frankly is why where euthanasia is available, nobody wants the pills. They want a doctor injecting, being 100% certain that I'm not gonna wake up and this will be done. Does that answer your question? It does. I, I find myself wondering if maybe, you know, there's, I mean, in public health, there's so many um, programs to prevent suicide. And so mm -hmm. I, I almost wonder if maybe there's the, a cognitive, maybe a, sh a shift that they're trying to make towards, well, if, if it's a doctor doing it, then maybe it's not really yes. suicide because I, I don't want to commit suicide and yes. would hurt my family. But to your point, if my family's here and there's a doctor here. You know, maybe it's, it's somehow shifting. Yes. I don't know. The proponents do not like the term suicide. They object to it very strongly as this is suicide because of the connotation of it. And that actually went before the American Medical Association. They said, we shouldn't call this suicide at all. We should call it aid in dying because they're dying anyway. Uh, but if you just take the literal meaning of the word suicide is taking your own life, it's not really a pejorative term necessarily. It's really more accurate to say that aid in dying it's such a vague idea, it could be anything, it could be hospice care. Um, so that's, the, the words do matter. There's one, one more question. Go ahead. No, I didn't have another one. Oh, uh, yes. Okay. We'll take two more. <laughs> Go ahead. Oh, me, okay. Um, I was wondering from a health insurance perspective, uh, Usually there's so much back and forth and approval of yeah. different procedures or drugs or whatever. How is there the same level of like back and forth with approving for the same procedure when yeah. there's like no formal like requirements for like psychiatric evaluation or like witnesses or other things you mentioned? How does that work? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so insurance approval. Um, we don't know a lot about this. Some insurers have explicitly include assisted suicide drugs in their coverage. Uh, there's been a couple of notorious cases reported where doctors claim um, that patients were denied uh, chemotherapy for advanced cancer as being quote unquote experimental, but being saying we'll cover your assisted suicide drugs. And that gets to that question, is it really choice if the insurer says no to potentially life-extending therapy, but you can have this therapy that will end your life therapy? Um, we don't know a lot about it, frankly, what the role of insurance is, but there's a lot of concerns about conflict of interest there for obvious reasons. Yes? I was going to ask what this looks for. So this is obviously an 18 and over, but what if you have yes. like a 15-year-old or mm -hmm. a 5-year-old or some kind of child in pediatric hospice? Maybe just able to make that decision. I don't know. Yes. The argument of a mature minor or yeah. parents making this decision. Uh, no one in the United States has gone there. They don't want to touch this because they're still trying. And I think the, the strategy is to get this passed in a critical number of states, and then they'll start pushing for expansion. But right now, um, the proponents have been very strict about saying this is only within the four corners 
of the law that we're advocating for right now. In Europe, very different story. They pushed the envelope in Netherlands and Belgium to children. Um, in Canada, they've at least started talking about extending it to children. You know, again, if it's medical care, if it's a right, how can you deny the right to children um, who are suffering with terminal illnesses or grave um, disabilities? Um, but not, uh, not in the US. You've been a great audience, really thoughtful, so please. Thank you very much.